Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. Welcome back to the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. So Lauren, what are we talking about in this episode today? Well, last week in your episode about returning to work and reopening society safely during the pandemic, you and your guests mentioned the importance of testing. And the kind of testing that's really needed now is this very broad scale testing of asymptomatic people. So today we're talking about a new method for scaling up COVID-19 testing. How does the test do that? The key advance described in this article, which I should note is a preprint posted on MedArchive, is the clever use of DNA sequencing. So over the past 10 to 15 years, the cost of DNA sequencing has plummeted, while at the same time, the technology is rapidly improved. And this test takes advantage of this, and with a few elegant hacks and a lot of optimization, it's able to run many thousands of tests simultaneously. That sounds like a really important tool to have in our kit. Who developed this test? The original concept and design of the sequencing-based approach was actually developed at a startup drug discovery company called Octin. And I have the co-founder and UCLA professor Sri Kasuri here to talk to me about the origin of the method and how they decided to develop the test as an open source project. He worked with Valerie Arboleda, a physician scientist and professor of pathology, laboratory medicine, and human genetics, and my second guest, along with the team at UCLA to take this from a concept to a validated diagnostic platform that just recently received its emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. Our conversation begins with Valerie describing what we have versus what we need in terms of COVID-19 testing. So right now we have a lot of qPCR diagnostic assays, sort of your bread and butter tests to identify the viral genome in a sample. And a lot of the big companies have really scaled up the testing as much as they can. One of the challenges has really been getting enough testing to test frequently enough to open up school societies safely. And COVID-19 has been something that's very different than anything, I think, in the diagnostic clinical space we've experienced before. We've never had to do this type of scale and this type of testing for people who aren't necessarily symptomatic. Yeah, there are different purposes for testing. One is you're in the hospital, you don't know why you're sick, it might be the flu, it might be COVID. And we think for now, at least, that for what's called like differential diagnosis of if you have COVID or something else, we're probably good on scale right now. And the second 
side of this, like the purpose is public health, pandemic suppression, not individual treatment of a patient. And in those cases, there's a different set of criteria that are important. The biggest ones, at least from what epidemiologically people have looked at, is frequency of testing. Like how often are you tested? And then cheap, you know, dollars to tens of dollars, not what the current reimbursement rates are about $100. And the last thing is easy. Is it a saliva spit tube or is it what's called an NP swab where it's like way back in your nose and it's done by a healthcare professional? Right. Yeah. So what we have now are the tests that are really well suited for you've been exposed, you're feeling sick, you're in the hospital or you're at a testing facility. You need to know whether you have COVID or not versus what we need now are tests that can be done really broadly across the whole population, whether you've been exposed or not, whether you've been feeling sick or not. And to get to that level, the tests need a different set of characteristics than the ones that you would use if you were thought to be sick with COVID. And that's what this test that you've developed, the SwabSeq, is providing. And I'll give some background on why SwabSeq might have been useful for this. At Octant. We're a startup company. We have been internally using and developing the RNA sequencing based platform to be similar to some of the same characteristics. So we wanted it to be easy. We wanted it to be scalable in a way that would allow us to do tens of thousands of these samples at a time. And we wanted it to have like very little labor and no automation. Right. So the technology and kind of the processes that you developed at Octant for your synthetic biology purposes were a good starting ground for dealing with these questions that had come up in the COVID-19 testing space with how fast you could do it, with how low touch you could do it, how few materials you would use, and how you could do fewer runs on this really expensive machine. So how did you decide to develop this project in this open manner as opposed to doing it as something within your company, within Octant? Yeah, I mean, early on, we were debating this. At the time, we were a less than 20-person company that's made for really drug discovery. And we didn't want to become a clinical diagnostic company, which is more akin to like FedEx than it is to like drug discovery, right? And so I think for us, it was like, we're not going to do this. This is not us. But at the same time, we knew we had a procedure that was pretty reliable and would work. And then the question became like, are we going to open source it? Like, are we comfortable with that? And like, I think the clear answer to that was, yeah, it seemed like the right thing to do. And we released that protocol in early April under the Open COVID pledge. So basically what that means is people are free to use that and any IP associated with that. Oh, that's really interesting. How does SwabSeq integrate into other tests that are being developed by other companies and other groups? So we have really no say in how people use it for the purposes of COVID testing or towards the pandemic. But people are contributing back to the community. We have these weekly conference call and an internal Slack channel where people share results. So it's mostly been pretty collaborative, public and private. And I think to echo on that, it's been wonderful to see because I think on its own, there's an idea and then there's sort of actually doing it and having multiple places do it at the same time so we all learn from each other. Because if we all had to make the same mistakes that everyone else has made independently, sort of in a vacuum, it would have taken far longer to even get this to a workable protocol. I really valued not having to do it all, like if it was in my research lab, 
just even trying to bring up a protocol takes months. And the fact that this was able to be brought up, I think really speaks to everybody sharing, sharing what they had, sharing their ideas or sort of ways they've optimized certain pieces of the protocol. So I think what would be great now is to walk through the steps of a standard qPCR test and compare it to SwabSeq, like very high level. Yeah, there's like variations on all of this, but let's <laughs> go what we're doing at UCLA. So we take the clinical microbiology lab samples from the hospital. Usually that's a swab. A technician will go unpackage that take a small amount of that, and then puts it in a semi-automated machine that purifies the RNA. COVID-19 is an RNA virus. So the thing that encodes for this virus, it's made out of RNA. So the first thing you need to do is turn that RNA into a DNA. And that's done through this process called reverse transcription. And then because there's only a small number of copies, what you need to do is amplify it. And that's called the polymerase chain reaction. And what basically does is you add an enzyme called a polymerase that basically takes two regions that you decide upon. These are primers. And what the polymerase will do is just kind of make copies of this over and over and again. So the first cycle will make two copies of it from this initial copy. And then the second step will make four and then eight and then 16 and 32 and 64. And you just keep on going up to about like 40 cycles. So two to the 40th is about what? like trillions of copies. And so that process, at every step, you're taking a picture of this thing in quantitative PCR. You're taking a picture at step one, you're taking a picture at step two, you're taking a picture at step three, all the way to 40. And you're saying, at what point can I see RNA lighting up? And because that depends on how many RNA copies were in the beginning, like if you have a lot of RNA copies in the beginning, your thing will light up earlier. And if you have a very few, it'll light up later. If you have none, it'll never light up. Right. And so that's what qPCR is. It's quantitative because you're taking pictures of it at every step. Yeah. And you're taking pictures because it has a fluorescent probe that is added, and the fluorescent probe increases at the same rate as the RNA increases. Exactly. And so that is like the mainstay of molecular diagnostics, right? Because like you can be very specific with these primers. And when people talk about the specificity, that's what they're talking about. Like, is this region of the genome very specific for this virus? And so like that process happens on this machine called a qPCR machine, which is really, really hard to get right now because like everyone around the world has been buying these machines up and you can't just like ramp up production of millions of machines overnight. So now let's talk about where SwabSeq deviates from that protocol. Yeah, SwabSeq, does something similar, except it doesn't use the kinetics of this PCR reaction. What it does is takes that PCR reaction and then dumps it into a sequencer. And one of the big things about SwabSeq is it really takes care of the scalability issue. Like a single sequencing machine gives you about 40,000 tests in that one sequencing run if you got it right. In terms of actual scalability, to do that by qPCR would be a lot of qPCR machines. Right, right, right. So they're both relying on PCR. It's more how the PCR reactions are being quantified at the end. That's the major advance that SwabSeq provides. And because of those advances, you're able to do higher throughput. You're able to do more samples in one go. And we do two things. One is just using what are called barcodes that lets you know which well each of these reads that you sequence comes from, so you know where the viral reads are coming from. And then the second thing that we add is what's called an in vitro standard. So we make a synthetic RNA that looks exactly like the virus. And the only thing that's different is that we flip a bunch of bases. 
So instead of it saying ATCG, it would be GCTA. And so when we read it out by sequencing, that's super easy to tell apart. And what we always do is measure not the number of viral reads we see, but the number of viral reads compared to the standard. And the reason why we do that is because anything in the PCR that's like inhibitory towards PCR, so something in your snot that like just inhibits the PCR should inhibit the amplification of the virus just as much as it inhibits the amplification of the synthetic standard because they're both just RNA molecules. And so you take what's normally like a count-based thing in sequencing and convert it into like a ratiometric readout that is robust to a lot of the noise that you see in normal PCR assays and why you often need purification for those types of assays. So what it does is it just adds a control to each of those wells. So you no longer have to like monitor this reaction. So you don't need a quantitative qPCR machine. And then secondly, you can use sequencing, which is way more scalable because of the revolutions in genomics that have happened over the last decade. So like a single high-end sequencing instrument can do like 100,000 tests easily. So the internal standard provides you with a couple different things. So you can use it to get around the need to do these RNA extraction protocols because if there's something in the sample, something from your nose mucus that happens to inhibit the PCR reaction, it's going to inhibit the viral sample and the standard equally so that you'll still be able to get the ratio. And the ratio is the most important part. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the piece also that's important is from the diagnostic or screening standpoint is that you know then you can really call a true negative because if you were able to amplify the standard, there's no reason why you couldn't amplify the actual virus itself. Right. So, you know, we talked about the importance of the internal standard. And then the other key difference is this barcode. So you have your plate that has all the different samples in it and each well gets a special molecular barcode. And then you do your PCR reactions and everything gets amplified. And then because it has this unique barcode, when you take it from the PCR machine to the sequencing machine, you can just mix all those samples together and the barcode is attached to each of the samples. So now you can, on your sequencer, run all the samples at once in one tube as opposed to having to run the outcome of each PCR reaction individually. Yes, it's a combination of all the samples you pretty much mixed together. We don't really like to use the word pooling because people confuse it with the pooling that we hear about in the news where you're pooling samples at the very beginning. This is after we've done all the reactions. Every single product of your PCRs already has that molecular barcode on it. And so once we pool at that point, it's very easy to, by sequencing, identify where it came from. Right. If you pool at the beginning, you're not going to be able to distinguish who was sick. You'll be able to tell if someone was sick in that group, but not be able to link it back to the particular sample. Whereas if you add this molecular barcode at the PCR step, now you're able to identify which sample came from which person. And then the benefit of having the molecular barcodes is you can analyze lots and lots and lots of different tests all in just one go. And that cuts down on reagents, it saves time, and eventually will save money as well. Yeah. And it saves equipment too. And as far as the timing goes, I mean, if you had enough qPCR machines, that would be actually a very fast process. Like a qPCR itself takes about an hour and a half from when you start the machine to finish it. And what we do is we have that same hour and a half, but we also have to add on amount of time for sequencing. 
it's not a lot of time. It's somewhere between three and six hours, but you can do way more in that time if you're able to scale it properly. Yeah. And I think it brings up a point of confusion in general, right? There's a difference between like the assay time and turnaround time, right? Turnaround time is the assay time plus all the time around kind of dealing with capacity issues. So like almost all turnaround time right now is dominated by capacity. It's not that it takes two weeks to do a test. It's that it takes two weeks because there's such a backlog of these tests. And so what we see from at least the epidemiological studies and simulations is that the faster the turnaround, the better. And you definitely want it like before 24 hours. That makes sense. Yeah. Especially because if you're asymptomatic, you know, you want to go out and live your life. And so you want to limit the number of people you could expose between when you take the test and when you get the results back. One of the elements of the paper that I found really interesting, which I would have never thought of in terms of being a big bottleneck, was collecting and accessioning the samples. And I thought that was a really interesting solution that you created was basically a way to offload all of that onto the people who are taking the test and having them input all their data and having them identify their tubes so that you guys didn't have to do that element of the work. I think that's been one of the things we've really tried to, I don't want to say battle, but trying to educate people on sort of we've done the upfront work to try and optimize the processes. Because as soon as you tell somebody who's trained in laboratory medicine, like, oh, we think we can do a couple thousand a day. And they were like, you can never get the pre-analytics. The part before the test where you have to collect the person's information and actually collect their sample, that's the hard part. Yes, your test works. It's really cute. But, you know, the pre-analytics are so hard that it's going to be impossible to do that scale. And so we did spend a lot of time really trying to figure out how we can optimize it so that, you know, a UCLA undergraduate could spit into a tube, register their test with reasonable accuracy, right? So that's the type of, I think, innovation to think a little bit outside of the box and not limit ourselves to what we have always traditionally done, because I think this is a out of this world kind of problem. Yeah, that leads to my next question, which is, you know, what are the next steps for SwabSeq? Obviously, you're working on getting the paper out, but what is kind of the end goal for you guys in this project? I mean, we want to get UCLA tested and back safely. I think that's like be all end all. Like UCLA is definitely not trying to turn this into a business. But like testing is going to be a big portion of like making sure people can come back safely and work together again. So I do think we have to show it's possible somewhere. And I think places like Illinois and Yale are doing this with Saliva Direct. I think we can show hopefully that it can happen with SwabSeq. But at the end of the day, like I see how much Josh and Val and their teams are just cranking on this. And it's realistically not sustainable to have professors and grad students and technicians volunteering their time every day, all day <laughs> to do this at scale. So I don't know. Val and myself and a bunch of people at UCLA are just constantly trying to figure out like, how can we get this into a way that's like cheap and scalable? We're hoping that there are outs here that don't leave Val and her team on the hook to test the entire UCLA <laughs> campus for the next year. It's not easy, right? But right now, I mean, we're hopeful. Like it's worth our efforts to do because if it's possible, then it can actually solve some problems. Val and Shree, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. I really appreciated taking the time and talking to me about this really exciting and important work. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Lauren. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.